John Baptiste Massillon was born in 1663 in France. He showed gifts very early on at public speaking, and at the age of 18, contrary to his father's wishes, he ended up uh, joining the congregation of the oratory and was soon teaching at area colleges on speaking, public speaking. In 1696, while he was still a young man, he moved to Paris and he became the director of a famous seminary of the day and soon gained a wide reputation for strong, very clear sermons as a French preacher. And in 1699, he was chosen to be the preacher at the court of Versailles where he preached before King Louis XIV of France. Shortly afterward, he was appointed the court chaplain to the king of France, King Louis XIV. At first, Louis XIV regularly attended all of Massillon's sermons, but later the king grew cold and distant with Massillon. And he said once to Massillon, I have heard many great orators and I've been highly pleased with them. But whenever I hear you, I go away displeased with myself, for I see my own character. And Massillon was never one to change his message to suit his audience and please his audience, even if it was the king. And when Louis XIV died, his funeral gave an excellent example of this. Louis XIV had perhaps the longest reign of any French king, 72 years. He had the most magnificent, extravagant court in all of Europe. And he planned his own funeral to be just as spectacular and go out in a bang. And the king instructed Massillon that upon his death, he was to lie in a golden coffin at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And he instructed that at his funeral service, the entire cathedral was to be completely dark. Dimly lit by only one candle positioned above his coffin, so that all would be awed by his presence, even in his death. When Louis died, Massillon did exactly as the king had instructed, and at the funeral, as thousands waited in hushed silence, and they peered at this exquisite casket in that dark room that held the remains of their monarch, illuminated by one single flickering candle, Massillon began the funeral oration. And to the surprise of all, he slowly reached down and he snuffed out the candle, representing the late king's greatness. And in the darkness, he proclaimed to all, Only God is great. And in a sense, Hebrews 1 has told us in no uncertain terms, as it has snuffed out the candle of any creaturely greatness, of even angels, that Christ is great. He is supreme. And the whole chapter is a declaration and a celebration of God's final word to the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You saw in chapter 1, 1 through 4, we enjoyed seeing the seven things about Christ and then had the Lord suffer and celebrated Him a couple Sundays ago. But God, He spoke to the fathers uh, long ago in many ways, in many, uh, many different portions. But in these last days, the writer says, He's spoken to us in His Son. 
And that's the point of chapter 1 that we finished last week. That something utterly stupendous has happened in the coming of the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews is saying what John said in John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later on, the Word was made flesh, and He dwelt among us. God the Son took on human form as God's final decisive Word to the world. And all that God says is rooted in Jesus. All the fullness of God is in Jesus. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. And God's final decisive word is Jesus. That's what Hebrews 1 is about. The final word. Jesus Christ. He's the heir of all things. He made the world. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature as God himself. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God's majesty. He's greater than any angel because angels worship him. He is the mighty God. And that's the message of chapter 1. God has spoken by his son to us. And this Son is Creator, He is Sustainer, He is Owner, He is Ruler, and He is Redeemer of the world. There are no commands in that first chapter, only a declaration of the greatness of God. And Jesus, the final Word of God. And now we come in chapter 2 to the first command in Hebrews. There are several commands and warning passages that are placed strategically throughout this book. And this is different than a regular letter. Hebrews is a sermon. It's called a word of exhortation in chapter 13. And a word of exhortation is something that would be shared as a sermon in a synagogue. Hebrews is a sermon. Very skillfully written. And in chapter chapter 2, the first thing that is mentioned here is a command, something we must do. But the connection with chapter 1 and the greatness of Christ as a final revelation of God is very important. And what he's trying to tell us is this. Because of the supremacy of Christ, the gospel has an urgency. It is imperative to obey. The gospel in Romans many times is called the obedience of the faith. God has commanded men everywhere at all times to repent, the Bible says. In Acts 17. And our question we want to have in our mind this morning, is there an urgency to understanding and applying the gospel in your life as a disciple of Christ today? And if you are not a disciple of Christ yet, why not? There is an urgency. Time is short. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought, or we must, give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. We must. You see the imperative there. You see the warning. You see the urgency. There's no waffling here. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no gray here. We must. In other words, the eternal issues relating to drifting away are based on this. Your spiritual growth is anchored on this. This is a must. It is not simply an act in the past, but a continual engaging of faith. In attention to the spiritual realities of the gospel. There is no coasting. 
There is a serious spiritual attention that you must pay to your understanding and growth in the gospel. He says, you must pay, you ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that you have heard, hearing. Pay attention to the things you have heard, which means we're going from beyond hearing to listening. Hearing can discern meaning. Listening relates the meaning to action. Results. A child can hear what his parents have told him to do, but listening means a response. Chapter 2, verse 1 is telling us that Christians should remain keenly attentive to what God has said to them through Christ. Otherwise, there is great danger. Great danger. The things which have been heard, probably referring to the teachings of Christ and the gospel, which they had previously received from the Lord through the apostles, and acknowledged and professed dependence on and faith in the standard of their doctrine and the word of God, probably more specifically here, the New Testament. But there is a danger. There is a danger. There's a warning here. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which you have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. That word, let them slip, is an interesting word. It could be rendered, um, should drift past. Um, It's used only this one time. That word is only used this one time here in the Greek New Testament in this passage. But it's used in other places in secular Greek, uh, talking about snow melting off a soldier's uniform and dripping to the ground. Um, it's used, in, and if, 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 you're, if you're a married man, uh, you go through stages in your life. And one of the stages is when you get married, your ring is, is loose or, or it, it fits loosely. And then as you grow in your marriage, you grow. It's a little tighter. I can't get mine off. Put on some weight here. But then you get to the stage where you're like, this is enough. I've got to lose some weight here. You go on a diet, and, and, and you might be doing something, working in the wood or, 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 or something, and, and your ring slips off. Where'd my wedding ring go? And that's kind of the picture here. The word is also used of a ring slipping off a finger. How many of you have ever lost a ring? How many of you ever found it again? That's, that's a relief, isn't it? Um, to find that ring again. Um, but that's the, that's the idea of a ring that is slipping off the finger. You don't notice it. It happens slowly and all of a sudden, where's my ring? It's gone. You don't realize how far you've come. It's also used of things that are drifting in a, in a stream. Um, bark drifting in a stream. A log drifting in the tide. A dead fish Drifting down the stream. And by the way, do you notice what things drift? Things that aren't alive. Things that aren't struggling against the stream. Things that are just going with the stream drift, right? They just go with the current. That's the nature of drifting. It's also used of a ship. A ship. A ship that is, that is, uh, that is to meet its point of anchor to the shore. And it drifts past that point of anchor. And it's too late to go back. You can see the subtle nature of it, don't you? When 
person said, as a matter of fact, if you examine a hundred people who lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Little things. What brings such drifting in our lives? Well, if for one thing, it would be the, 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 the drift of years. Uh, the longer you live, maybe the more you're able to see it. Many who are at one time professing fine Christians seem to be so far away from where they were, their former selves. Some of them have been able to keep up appearances and, and, and the years have carried them far away from their devotion. I, I know people I graduated with in, in college who don't even profess the Lord as God anymore. Drifted far away from where they were. Robertson McQuilkin prayed... I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late, that I should end before I finish, or finish but not well. That I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark, he said. What is he saying there? He's guarding against the heart that is deceived. He knows the seriousness of drifting. He asked for God's power in it. Some drift because of their familiarity with the truth. They're bored with the truth. They're, they're dull to it. It's like the Dead Sea just takes in, takes in, and never gives back. And the gospel is ho-hum. doesn't thrill the soul. They might even keep up appearances by coming and engaging in spiritual activities, but the reality of their hearts are drifting in the inside. Some drift because of busyness. If you've flown into Washington, D.C., you may have flown into Dulles Airport. And uh, John Foster Dulles was a great statesman, but he was a man of legendary busyness. Um, he almost lived on a jet as he would trot the globe in his different responsibilities. In fact, um, um, it was suggested that the president should tell him, don't just do something, stand there. That's where that <laughs> saying came from. And uh, it makes sense if you've been, ever been there at Dulles Airport, they're a busy place. But some drift because of busyness, misplaced priorities. The rust and deterioration that happen that slowly causes drifting bears its existence when storms of opposition come. How many of you ever had your, your mailbox knocked over by the snow plow? Oh, okay. Probably if you were to dig down, you might have felt, unless they just nailed it, most of the time it's the snow hitting it, and what has happened is underneath it's rotted down in the bottom in the ground. But it's only really revealed when the snow hits it and knocks it down. And opposition can quickly reveal that something has been rotting for a long time. All of a sudden, the, the anchor, the storm of opposition grows, and the anchor's been loosed, and when the winds come, there's an eternal soul that's suddenly on the rocks and shipwrecked, but it, because it is not based and anchored in Christ. And no wonder, then, that this, this, this passage in Hebrews 2.1 is such a strong, powerfully praised command that should be read here with an exclamation point. We must pay more careful attention to what we've heard so we don't drift away. There is... No secondary salvation. There is no 
additional way. It's Christ and nothing. Notice the author says we. We, which includes him. He's identifying with the temptation. He knows that as he is talking to professing Christians, he would by naive to take for granted that all are genuine. There will be a day where we reach full maturity in the harvest, but there may be people in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, that seem to give signs of life and then afflictions come burned up and go away. Or they're tempted by the world. Now he screws it a little bit tighter. He ratchets it down in verse 2 to build his argument. And he says, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? He talks, he's talking about Moses' law that he describes as being a word spoken through angels. You can look in Deuteronomy 33.2 and it talks about the, uh, the, the uh, God at Mount Sinai with ten thousands of his saints. And that word saints there is literally holy ones and probably referring to the angels. Psalm 68.17, he talks about his angels with him at si- as, he, as, he, as they were at Sinai, delivering the law to Moses. So we, 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 it might be a little foreign concept to us that the law of God delivered to Moses there, the Moses law, Mount Sinai, was, was mediated by angels, and, and the angels were the messengers, but it is, uh, it is absolutely clear in the New Testament, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, as Peter is, or excuse me, uh, Stephen is uttering some of his final words in his message before the first stone crushes him. He reminds the Israelites, the Jews, of this truth. Acts 7, verse 53. He says, Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. It's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, talking about the law of Moses again. Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Angels mediated the law to the Israelites. It was their role. Which shows it was important. God sent heavenly beings. not They were creatures, but he sent heavenly beings to mediate his law. And verse 2 says, And every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward. There are consequences. Each breaking of the law demanded something. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and brought an appropriate penalty. And the word of the Old Testament law was spoken through the angels by the authority of God. It had great authority. It was not to be ignored by Israel. And there are plenty of Old Testament examples of this. That the law given by God through angels could not be ignored and penalty free. His argument is, if that is true, how much more the final word of God given through His very own Son in the New Covenant. The New Covenant of Christ that has been spoken by the Son of God, chapter 1, verses 2. 
The Most High, the Supreme One. Jesus, he's argued already, is superior to the angels. So if the Israelites were severely punished whenever they disobeyed the law, which they had received from God through angels, the punishment for disregarding what God has spoken in His Son, chapter 1, verse 1 and following, is even more severe. This is a great gift. This is the age of grace, is it not? But it is an eternal penalty for turning away from this great gift. You can see he expands this in later on in the book in chapter 10 and verse 26 in more poignant terms. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. The urgency of the gospel, the seriousness of the gospel. He says this in Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we had received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth, listen, no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, this is it. Jeez, there is not an additional, there is not a plan B here, it's Christ. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And he brings back the same argument that he's made in chapter 2. He says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. What is more severe than putting the physical death without mercy for turning away from the life giving obedience to Moses' law in Israel's time? Answer. The worst punishment for turning away the lifeblood of Christ, the Son of God, given freely in love to pay for your sins in your behalf. There is no other escape. There is no other way in life that ends in joy. You can wish uh, 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 another opportunity uh, and, and ignore the escape, but it will not change the fact. I can wish away an oncoming train. Cannot change the fact. I cannot ignore the escape that is provided for it. Without Christ you will be lost. The faith that saves is, is, is not only a one-time act. But it is a faith that embraces Christ. It's a faith that holds fast as Christ holds you fast. It's not a faith that you once had. It's a faith that continues as the writer's argument. And if you read the book over and over again, you'll see how serious he is about this. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. This is what happened in Moses' day. How, in verse 3, shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Notice he doesn't say, how shall we escape if we reject salvation? That's obvious. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect? You know how neglect happens? Little by little, by drifting. Not having our mind stirred to remembrance. Peter says, I need to stir your mind to remembrance. The things I've told you. We shall not escape. Escape what? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus in a parable about a wedding feast. Helps us see this.
Matthew 22 in verse 5. Starting in verse 1, Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Listen. But they made light of it. That word made light of it. And the idea of neglect, as I understand it, are the same concepts. Made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And the king heard thereof. He was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. He opens a wedding feast to others. It's used in also in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14. Paul's words to... Timothy to hold fast to the gospel in 1 Timothy 4.14. The same word in the original language is used when Paul tells Timothy, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, the laying on the hand of the hands of the presbytery. Neglect. Neglecting. The angels were the messenger announcing the word. Jesus is the word. God himself has come with himself and proclaimed his word in Christ. You would understand that the more precious a gift, the more severe a penalty. It's one thing for me to rob Walmart and receive a penalty for something I stole from Walmart. That's another thing for me to try to breach Fort Knox in Kentucky. There's something more precious in there. There's a more severe penalty. And so this, this, uh, this precious gift of salvation, so great, proclaimed by Christ Himself. Earlier prophets gave partial and only uh, predicted it partially. But Christ's fullness in the actual work and display to the world and in full payment for sin makes it more precious. He says, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. This probably means that the writer here isn't Paul uh, writing, because uh, Paul heard directly the Lord, from the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the writer here is talking about us that heard about Christ from those who heard Jesus directly. You can cross-reference Galatians 1.12 with that and see what... I mean, but he's talking about the apostles. The apostles' sermons and acts as they go to the synagogues, they preach who? Christ. Philip and Samaria went and he preaches Christ. The signs that accompanied here, the miracles, there's a bunch of them in Acts. I I have a bunch of references, but we're not going to look at them. But just trust me, they they verified the gospel message. That's what he's saying right here. The Spirit... Uh, and verse chapter uh, 2 and verse 4 says, God also bearing them witnesses, both the signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. He made it, in other words, he made it abundantly clear. He didn't have to do this, but he put stamps of approval on this. The message with these things that he included. 
the Titanic. <clears throat> the greatest and, 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 and latest vessel afloat at its time had the latest equipment on it. Decorated in the style more, uh, more lavish than any hotel of its era. But its radio room was little more than virtually a cupboard with a Morse code transmitter and key. Quite an operator, and there were two of them there on that Titanic to sit listening for incoming messages and warnings. Operator had to sit often for long, very long hours in a room the size of a closet receiving and transmitting messages um, to other shipping and land stations. Many of the messages were just personal messages sent to the wealthy passengers that he had to deliver. It was passed on the appropriate officer or purser. The message was for a passenger. Two radio operators, George Phil- John George Phillips and his junior Harold Sidney Bride, in the, uh, employed by the British Marconi Company, on that ship whose job was to tend the radio. They had a mutually agreed shift system where they would keep that radio in operation 24 hours a day, although that wasn't even required by the law. But their transmitting equipment that they did have was some of the most powerful equipment of the day. Um, During the day, the operators had a 400-mile transmission range, and at night they could increase that to nearly three times the difference. So there was plenty of of, of ability here. They strung an antenna across the two, uh, two masts of the Titanic. And as the Titanic left Queenstown, Ireland, the radio traffic consisted mainly of messengers for passengers. It was the job for them to pass them on and intercept general messages and warnings. Each radio station had its own call letters, and MGY was the one assigned to Titanic. MKC was assigned to her sister ship, the Olympic. That season, of course, ice was a was a hazard in those winter seasons in North Atlantic, and and a couple days since even leaving Southampton as they headed down to another port on their on their trip, many ships had reported ice in the exact area where they would be sailing. And on the 11th of April, she received six warnings from ships passing through heavy ice. The next day, received five more warnings about ice. Three more on the 13th, and seven on the 14th. And all these messages would be written down as they were intercepted, logged in the radio book, passed on to the officers of the bridge. There was no way that the captain, along with the officers, would have been unaware of the huge peel of ice that lay in front of Titanic. Let me just share a few of those messages on that last day. Westbound steamers report bergs growing ice and fields of ice and then the coordinates from the Coronia. From the Baltic to the Greek steamer Athena reported passing icebergs and large quantities of field ice and gave the coordinates and then said, wish you and Titanic all the success. Commander. The America is actually a private one delivered to the office in Washington, D.C., a Titanic overheard. Talks about passing two large icebergs. The Californian, again, gives an exact location of very large icebergs 
It says, regards the Masaba. This message never reached the bridge. Harold Bride, the junior operator, was getting some much-needed sleep, and Jack Phillips, one of the officers, was busy on the key at sending and receiving commercial traffic to Cape Race. But this message said, much heavy ice pack, great number large icebergs, weather good and clear. And you know the story. There was no excuse. No excuse. There is no excuse for neglect or drift. There is not an option B. It is Christ. It is Christ alone. Jesus is the Savior from hell. And Jesus, people miss this as the Savior from sin. There are many who are dangerously deceived by, who desire to certainly escape the consequences of sin and hell, but have no desire to be delivered from their sins. Many today think they can love God and still love their sin. But you cannot have both. You can't love both. In Vicksburg, Mississippi, there was a boat called the Robert E. Lee Pleasure, Blo- Pleasure Boat. And there were hundreds of people aboard. And at midnight, that boat caught fire. And the captain discovered he told his first mate to rush down the saloon and down every corridor to wake everybody up. He didn't have time to explain why. He just said, wake everybody up. And some became angry at having been awakened rudely and thought it was a drunkard or a practical joker. Some were laughing. Others heard the warning couldn't believe it. This young man ran down the corridor. His message was harder and harder to hear as he left them and moved on. The fire overtook the ship very quickly. And there were some who heard the warning and believed it to be true and awakened from their sleep and made it to safety. And that's how people treat the message of the gospel sometimes. Some were amused, some became angry, some entertained. Some hear it and gradually cease to hear as the footsteps go down the corridor farther and farther. Some wait for a better season to set things right with God. The boat's on fire. Time is short. We must know and obey the gospel. And what is the gospel? Listen closely. Very simply, Jesus is the gospel in a certain sense. Who among us is tired of hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. Sent into this world to be born of a virgin that he might be sinless. Born under the law, the very law of God. A perfect, sinless Son of God. He has perfectly met all the requirements of God's law. He is ready to give his righteousness to us so that we'd have a perfect standing before God. The gospel is that Jesus went to a cross and there he was lifted up to die. And there upon the cross, the sins of everyone were transferred to him. And he who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange of the cross, the worst of me laid upon the best of what God had to offer. The best about him to be laid on me. As he shed his blood upon that cross, as I exercised faith in that, he reconciled sinful man to a holy God. There is no other way for us to have a relationship with an infinitely holy God except through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It was by his sin-bearing, substitutionary, vicarious death upon that cross. As it was this, as if he took sinful man in one hand and holy God in the other, and he brought the two together through his death. And by that death he satisfied the righteous anger of God and appeased his wrath towards all who would put their trust in him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, being justified with faith, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was through that death that He redeemed sinners out of the slave market of sin and redeemed us out of the tyranny of Satan's grip on our lives. It was by that death that Jesus Christ has provided now salvation free for all who will call upon His name. He was taken down from that cross, a dead man. He said, it is finished. Not I am finished. He said, it is finished. He had completed the mission of salvation that he had come into this world to accomplish. He was buried in a rich man's tomb and on the third day, the power that was in him, the Son of God, the Spirit of God, he was raised from the dead. He came walking out of that tomb as a risen, living, victorious Savior. He ascended back to heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is mighty to save to the uttermost all who call upon Him. He says, Him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He loves to save sinners. He is the friend of sinners. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came not for the righteous. He came for the unrighteous. He is a good physician. He came not for the well, but for those who are sick. And friend, if you have not, will you tell him this moment what a sinner you are? How sick and diseased you are by your sin. That you are unable to save yourself. That you are responsible for your sin. Would you call upon Him? Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a wretched, hell-bound sinner. But your grace is being offered to sinners just like me. And if you will call upon His name, I can assure you by the authority of the Word of God, He will save you. He will save you today and instantly. He will wash your sins away. You'll be clean and pure from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. He says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. If you will call upon Him, He will give you His righteousness. It is a free gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to merit it. He will clothe you with the perfect garments of His righteousness and make you acceptable to present before His Father. And as God looks upon you, there will be an eternal covering for your sin. He will see you as He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ covering the entirety of who you are. You will find acceptance with God and one day when you die, we'll take you into the very presence of the Father and present you faultless before the throne of God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter said, there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony born at the due or proper time. If you turn away from this free offer of the gospel... There is no hope for my soul. There is no hope for your soul without it. 
you will be trampling underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who hear this message, hear this truth, and refuse the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and bled and died upon Calvary's cross, there is an eternal punishment. If you refuse the gospel, your blood then is on your own hands. You will suffer in hell forever under the torment of the wrath of God. We do not say that lightly, but we say that truthfully. You will never find relief for your soul. But I want to tell you today, the gates of paradise have swung open through Jesus Christ. And you may come in. And you may enter. And Jesus says, come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for you will find rest for your souls. For my burden, my yoke, is easy. Light. How hard it is for you to continue in a life of sin. How glorious it would be to come into the yoke of the Lord Jesus to receive His salvation. This is a decisive moment in life. Nobody is promised another opportunity. If you are not saved, call upon Him. He will receive you, wash you, and one day take you with Him to heaven where you will spend eternity with Him. There is no better offer on the table. This is the greatest offer that has ever been made to anyone on this earth. This is the glorious good news of salvation in Christ. Let me bring this message to a close. Three things I want to challenge you about the urgency of the gospel of Christ. Number one, friend, if you are not in Christ, wrapped in His righteousness alone, your sin laid upon Christ as your only hope for eternity with Him, a heart not made alive in the resurrected Christ, You need to make no hesitation and you need to come to full trust in Christ, laying hold of Christ for His work on your behalf, embracing His righteousness that is promised to be credited to your account. I can promise you upon the authority of God's Word that He will make a dead soul alive. He will bring you into His family of disciples. He will put His very life inside of you by His Holy Spirit who comes to live within you. He will begin to change desires. He will begin to grow you in the likeness of the Savior. He will fill you with peace that is based on a peace with God because of Jesus. And believers, that's your call. Brothers and sisters who profess faith in Christ, do not drift. Do not coast. Press hard into Christ. Draw near with a full assurance and confidence in Him. Out of His love for you, draw near to Him. Walk with Him. Know Him. See Him. Seek Him. Obey Him. Kill sin. Be killing sin. Through the power of the Spirit, claiming the Word of God and His promises. Do not let His salvation in you grow cold. Live the gospel. Let it bear fruit in your life, in your desires, in your loves, in your worship, in your family, in your work, in your entertainment, in your recreation. If you need counsel and prayer, brothers and sisters, there's myself, there are many others who are available to pray with and direct and exhort you in your walk. Because growing in holiness is a community project. 
You need the prayers. You need the support of fellow brothers and sisters. You need the support of this church family as you grow. Wherever you are in your journey, it is not too late to change and grow. It is only too late when your heart stops beating. And thirdly and finally, to brothers and sisters again, the warnings of not escaping if Christ is neglected is no joke. There is heavy weight on us to share the good news. Your neighbors, your friends, your sons, your daughters, your grandsons, your granddaughters, your cousins, your uncles, your aunts, your nephews, your nieces, your customers, your bosses as God makes divine appointments. Hell is real. Hell is forever. But folks, the good news is Christ is enough. And the time is drawing to a close in our world. It is the last days. We have these four lesson Bible studies and and relations. If you're burdened about a family or friends about the gospel, myself and Charlie Martz, and there's probably others here, would love to arrange an appointment with you to meet with those individuals and share the gospel. If you'd set up the appointment with them, we would do the speaking if you weren't ready for that. If you could get the door open to speak with them about Christ, I want you to please pray about the Lord using you and the message to bring souls from the darkness to light. You all know people I don't know. We want the gospel to go to this community. You may be the very connection or the instrument because of your love for the lost soul of that person to get the good news to the lost sheep that the shepherd is seeking. Please let us know. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Give a great Savior. Let's pray. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder this morning if there's anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You have not put your full trust in the work that He accomplished. If that's you this morning, I wonder if the Holy Spirit has been tapping on your heart and you would raise your hand this morning and say, Today is a day. I desire to come to Christ. If that's you, would you lift your hand? We would love to be able to share with you from the Word of God the hope found in Christ. How we can have peace with God. Believers, this morning is mentioned. We have a warning here for us. You see, sin is deceitful. And we can be self-deceived. I wonder if you take the next few minutes and pray that the Lord would keep the gospel before you. Keep the urgency of the gospel before you. To treasure Christ, to set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth that are going to pass away. How shall we escape if we neglect? Don't drift. Don't drift. Seek God. There's others of you, and maybe even the same folks who, you have a name that's come to mind. I want you to pray about setting up an appointment with them to share the gospel. And if you'd like us to come along and be the mouthpieces for that, we'd embrace that. Talk to us, let us know. Let's pray.